Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to one's proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, just so you guys know, Deb wasn't originally our scripture reader, and all of our backups were out for very many reasons. And so today, uh, we're going to hear from a passage that you've already seen has a lot to do with belonging in the church and how we act when we belong in the church. Um, in a lot of ways, I believe that I'm preaching to the choir in all of the application that I'm about to expound for you guys today, but I guess my defense of that is that choirs need preaching too. That would be one thing. Um, and another would be that sometimes we're doing all the right things, and hopefully we can see a little bit more explicitly why is it that we do what we do as a church? What does it mean to belong? I've got to tell you, I'm blessed to belong in a community where when People have life events that come up and illnesses that mean they can't make it to do the scripture reading or to be there in kids ministry today. Well, we have other people willing to step up to the plate and we have people willing to organize all of that. It's a good thing. Um, so before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of the church. I thank you that... You have not saved us to yourself in order to be alone with you, but that you've saved us to a body and to a family, to a diverse set of people who do things that I can't do um, and who can be blessings in surprising ways. I pray that you would open our eyes to the grace of the gospel in this um, and that you would inspire us and convict us in all the ways that we need inspiration and conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text for today comes on the heels of one of the most famous passages in Scripture. So I'm going to read that now. You've probably heard it before. It goes like this. It's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So most of you have probably heard that passage before. I will not be teaching that passage tonight, but it's important that you know that that's what our passage for tonight is coming out of. The 12th chapter of Romans, um, and chapter and verses, those are not inspired by God. They're just really convenient for us. It makes it really 
easy for us to talk about the Bible. So anyway, there's not as much weight as when I talk about the rest of the Bible. But the 12th chapter of Romans, it's an amazing chapter in Scripture because in this gospel-saturated, theologically rich, faith-defining book of the Bible, this is the first time Paul gives any instructions. He does 11 full chapters without telling the Roman church and by proxy us what to do. He just tells them what's true. Up until now, all he's done was tell the church in Rome what their faith means, what the gospel is. But now, finally, he's telling us what we should do if the gospel is true. And so that's what Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 are all all about. That's what he means when he says, in view of the mercies of God, he means if all of the gospel is true, here's what the result should be. So what should we do if the gospel is true? You may be here believing the gospel. You may be here not so sure if you believe in the gospel. No matter what, this is an important question to answer. Paul's initial answer to this question probably does not surprise us. That's the one we see in verses 1 and 2. Although presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God is probably a more comprehensive mark, a higher mark than any of us meet, We have to admit that there's no other reasonable response to the gospel than to use our everything, and especially our bodies, to worship our merciful God. What else could we possibly be expected to do in light of the mercy of God? But what may surprise us is what Paul means when he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. For most of us, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, if you picture what that means, it probably drums up dramatic images of heroic obedience. But for Paul, when he tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, he's thinking of something that feels much more mundane, probably, to most of us. What he's talking about is actually our membership in a local church. So that's our message for today. It's this, if we belong to Christ, we belong to each other too. That's what this passage is all about. If we belong to Christ, we belong to each other too. And we're going to see this through three points. God's grace makes us different. God's grace gives us a job. God's grace makes us belong. So let's start with point one. God's grace makes us different. One thing that we need to see in this passage is that God's grace makes us different. So who remembers? It's, it's been a little while since we were there. This isn't a rhetorical one. I, I want to see hands if you do. Don't lie to me, though. Um, who remembers the creation of man in Genesis 2? Anybody remember when we went through that? Okay. God made man, and then what happened? What happened after he made man? He did this really, really surprising thing. He kept saying, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And so God makes man, and immediately we learn that the man needs company. He needs a suitable companion. But what what made a suitable companion for this man? 
Was it a clone? Was it another man? No, instead, he made a woman. God could have made man, another man, to be his companion, but he didn't. And it was God's grace that gave him Eve. Remember, the curse doesn't come till chapter 3. Married people, hear me. The curse didn't come till chapter 3. Okay? God gave him Eve. He cried out, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This was the grace of God that gave him the woman. He needed someone human like him, but different. Adam needed someone different from him, and it was God's grace that gave him this different person. So just as God made us diverse when he created us, that's what we see in Genesis 2, he made us diverse in our second birth too. This is why Paul says in verse 3 of our passage today, four, and this four is talking about why, what, what do I mean when I say don't be conformed to the pattern of this world? What do I mean when I say lay down your entire lives, including your body? What does he mean? He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So any one of us who's had any significant relationships, married or single, we know that our differences can be painful. It's not always obvious that it's God's grace that makes us different. And this comes up in the church, doesn't it? We, we're hurt by each other at times. We're confused by each other at times. Or it can just be challenging to be around each other at times. It's not always obvious that it's God's grace that makes us different. And as a result, we have a tendency to look down on those who are different from us. Even more, we can see people who are different from us as a hindrance or an annoyance or as a problem to be eliminated. But like Adam and Eve before, you, before the fall, if you asked either me or Megan what human relationship has given either of us the greatest sense of love, belonging, and safety, we would name each other. On the other hand, like Adam and Eve after the fall, if you asked either me or Megan what human relationship has caused us the most discomfort, we would also name each other. And I vetted both of these statements with my wife before I got up here. She agrees. They're, they're true, to the best of my knowledge. She at least consented. Um, but isn't that significant? Our differences, the otherness of others, can cause pain and strife to us, can't it? And in the midst of the pain and strife, it's easy to see people's differences as their faults. Or am I alone in that? It's easy to see people's differences as their faults. And because this is true, Paul wants to be explicit when he tells us that our differences are not a curse. They're a blessing. Other people's differences are not something for us to look down on. We should think of ourselves not more highly than we ought, but sensibly. And so knowing that God's grace has made us different allows us to appreciate both ourselves and others appropriately in light of God's sovereign grace and his good purpose. God has distributed a measure of faith to each of us who have been born again in Christ. 
This means that we do not have ourselves to thank for who we are in the body of Christ, but God. And so on the one hand, how could we be haughty? How could we be arrogant if we knew this? We are who we are by the grace of God. So to think of ourselves too highly is to give ourselves credit for God's work. And and that's only thinking of the the good parts of us, okay? But that's all we have to think about, even to realize that it's wrong, that it doesn't make any sense. Even if you're only thinking of the best aspects of yourself, to think of ourselves too highly is to give ourselves credit for God's work. And it causes us to view others wrongly to look down on them when we shouldn't. On the other hand, how could we look down on our brothers and our sisters if we knew this? Because they are who they are by the grace of God too. And so to look down on our spiritual family, whoever they happen to be, it's to belittle God's work. They are who they are by the grace of God. It doesn't matter who they are. It's God's grace that makes us different not just in physical creation, but in the church. So our diversity is not a curse to be managed, but a strength and a blessing to be embraced and enjoyed. We need to remember this because that's not always easy. It's a blessing. You're all a blessing to me, to each other, to the church. Our second point, God's grace gives us a job. God's grace gives us a job. So one challenge we have in understanding this passage is that just the way language works today, we use terms like gifts and measure of faith in a way that's very different from the way that many Christians in most of history have understood them. Because when we hear the words, the word gifts, for instance, we tend to think of talents and abilities, right? You would say, you, you see someone who's really good at doing something, you say, wow, they're gifted, don't you? When we hear measure of faith, we tend to relate this to the quality of someone's faith, don't we? And, and so it's, we read this as if to say, like, some people have a lot of faith and some people have a little bit of faith. While this probably feels like the obvious way to interpret this term, these terms, because that's kind of how we use them in everyday language today, there's nothing wrong with the fact that we use these terms those ways. Um, Paul, Paul uses some other analogies in this passage that may help us to understand what he meant a little bit better. Particularly, consider what he says in verse 4. He says this, Now, as we have many parts... In one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, dot, dot, dot. Then he goes on to verse 5. We're going to stop there. So we have many parts in one body, and all parts do not have the same, fun- do not have the same function. When we hear, hear the word gift in relationship to New Testament Christians, we should think function or role before we think of talent or ability. It's about function, and it's about role. It's about where God has placed you in his body. See, we tend to think of our gifts as abilities, and when we do this, it's easy for our concept of exercising our spiritual gifts to be sort of like a spiritual talent show. And that leaves a lot of room for pride, for proving, for comparison, insecurity, 
doesn't it? But God's purpose in giving us spiritual gifts is not for us to prove our worth or to puff up our pride. God's purpose in giving us spiritual gifts is to build up his church, and it's to build up his church according to his infinite wisdom, not ours. And so it can be surprising. It can be surprising the ways, the things that he gives us to do in the church body. It can be surprising the people that he puts in the body to do these things with, but it's according to his wisdom and not ours. So God's grace doesn't give us superpowers. It gives us a job to do. My thumb has a job to do. My legs have a job to do. That's what a spiritual gift is like. Understanding this not only frees us from quarreling, it frees us to serve the real community that we belong to, not some idealized what things should be like. The real community that we actually belong to. We should understand our gifts less in relationship to our natural abilities and more in relationship to how God has called us to serve the needs of his church. It's wonderful to use our abilities to serve God. We should all be doing that. How could we possibly be laying down our lives as a living sacrifice, be laying down our bodies as a living sacrifice to God if we're not using our abilities to his glory and to serve his church? It's wonderful to do this. But before we ask how we can do what we think we're best at to bring glory to God or what we love to do the most to bring glory to God, we should ask ourselves first, what the community that we're in, built of real people that meets in a real place, what they really need. What does this community really need? If you're wondering, what is my spiritual gift? You look around. In the same way, this isn't in my notes, but here we go. In, in the same, I've been going pretty fast this time, so I got a little bit of room to deviate. Um, in the same way that, that Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan, there was a priest who walks by. I don't remember all the characters who walked by, but there's all these really good people who walk by, a man who's basically dying in a ditch, and then this filthy, dirty, sinful Samaritan walks by and helps that person. And Jesus says, who was a neighbor? Who was that man's neighbor? If you want to know what your spiritual gifts are, the best, play, the best way to find out is to look around, find out, well, what is... What does my church community need? It's not, it's not our skills that keep God's church alive, but God's grace that equips us in the community that he's actually placed us in. And so when we see this, we may look at verses 6 through 8 of our passage for today a little differently. If you're like me, you may be inclined to read these verses with the primary question being, which of these is mine? So that's where it says, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. And it, and it says, if prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. If giving with generosity. If leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. And so if you're like me, you may be inclined to read these verses and say, which one of those is me? Which one of these is mine? Am I Mr. Incredible? Or am I Elastigirl? Am I the Hulk or am I Captain America? We might look at it like that. Instead of doing this, why don't we just say, what does our church need? Can I do any of those things? And the next question to look around, 
and ask people in your community, do you think I can do any of those things? If the answer is yes both times, that could be a spiritual gift that God has given you to exercise within your real church community to bless it as the body that you belong to. This list of gifts, it's not only non-exhaustive, it's also frustratingly non-descriptive if we were asking it to be a roadmap to competence in any skill, isn't it? Even more, it's mundane. It's so ordinary. If you're in a position to serve, what does Paul say you should do? Well, the, the spiritual thing to do is to serve. If you're in a position to teach, what does Paul think you should do? Well, the spiritual thing you should do is to teach. And so most of us are probably prone to trying to find our spiritual gifts so we can find a way to spiritually shine. We want to we show ourselves at our best. And so for those of us with public gifts, singing, playing instruments, teaching, we often show up at a church, especially a small church like this one, and we look for a platform. Say, look, this is, this is a great place for me to exercise the things that I would love to do. But for those of us with more private gifts, like serving, hospitality, and mercy, we often feel overlooked, underappreciated. We're doing things not everybody recognizes. Whatever God has given us to do, it has more to do with us serving the body to which we belong than it does reaching self-fulfillment. It has more to do with us serving the body to which we belong than it does reaching self-fulfillment. Now, God has made you to be who he's made you to be. He's saved you. And when he does so, yeah, it's going to complete you. But the quest after self-fulfillment is not what God has called us to. It's a happy byproduct at certain times, but it's not what God has called us to. It's something that vanishes as soon as we look for it. And so as a church, we do an above-average job in this department of showing up where we're needed, I would say. But there is a danger with Christians who do this really well. They can do this well out of duty because they feel like they have to. And so when, when we do this well out of duty, we can start to believe that God is depending on us. And when we start to believe that God is depending on us, we stop believing that we do what we do because we are depending on God in view of his mercies. And when we stop believing that we do what we do because we're depending on God, we can start to feel pride if things are going well or resentment when we feel that we're under a heavy burden and so we offer everything we are as a living sacrifice to God by serving our community, Paul says, not because God needs us, but in faith that God will both equip us and satisfy us with everything he is for us in Christ as we believe him with our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. But this flips our cultural concept as Western Americans on their heads. The expressive individualism that says that I exist in order to fulfill and become more of who I already am. This says, God says, I made you to belong. You belong to me. I am your king. 
You belong to each other. You are my body. It flips it on its head. We stop using the church and each other as a self-fulfillment tool, and we start functioning within what, has God, what God has called us to and what he's made us a part of. Our third point, God makes us belong. So our first two points need to be understood in light of this final point. God has made us members of his body. So each of us has a body, I can tell. I've got my eyes open. Uh, But each of us has a body made up of parts. And, And it's one body, but each part has a different function. And so it would obviously be crazy to say that that this finger doesn't belong to my body because it's just a little finger. It would also be crazy to say that the nose and the finger are the same because they're part of the same body. You can tell what's my nose and you can tell what's my finger and they're different. Both sides are important. In the same way that our bodies have parts, Christ's body has members. And that's all of us who've been born again in Christ. Christ's body has members. And actually, while, while we tend to use the word member to communicate exclusivity, the word came from a Latin word that means limb, like a leg or an arm. That's what member means. Um, so, so there is an element of exclusivity because your arm is not my arm. My leg is not your leg. But that's not the point of this analogy. The point of this analogy is actually the opposite. The analogy's primary purpose is to communicate a sense of belonging to all who are members. It's not to communicate exclusivity. It's to communicate a sense of belonging. I mean, how how crazy would it be if we were to think about our bodies like, like a leg comes off and the mouth was just like, I don't mind, I'm not a leg. (laughs) No, the mouth is the thing that cries out when the leg gets chopped off. They belong to the same body. In our culture, it's easy to understand how us being a body with parts gives merit to our diversity. It's easy to understand how us being a body with many parts gives merit to the ways that we're different. What's less obvious is this how it speaks to belonging. We understand how diversity helps things to function well. We have a really hard time understanding how this analogy speaks to belonging. So how do we tend to approach uncomfortable differences when we come across them as a culture? Do we say different strokes for different folks? We often do, don't we? And that, and that washes away the defining factor of what binds us together. It says, I don't know. I do it this way, you do it, you do it that way. You go your way, I'll go mine. Okay? Things won't come to blows as long as we're not too close to each other, is how we tend to view diversity in our culture. And so if we think of our differences positively in our culture, we most always do so by means of an individualism. And it allows us to think positively about people while keeping them separate from us. Don't impose yourself on me. Our cultural bent is to approach all belonging as elective. We are the ones making the choice about who belongs to us 
and whom we belong to. We're the ones choosing in this equation in our culture. Can understand why. I mean, belonging to people isn't always safe. Probably a lot of us have been hurt by being meaningfully involved with other people who have not been safe to belong to. But here's the thing. In Christ, who is good, who is our only hiding place, our belonging is according to God's choice to save, not our choice to belong. So I don't get to choose who these people are that I belong to him with. He's the one who does that. And so anyone that God has saved, he's joined us to as well. It's a total package deal. It's never just me and God and the people I let in. We don't just mutually belong to Christ. According to Paul, we belong to each other because of Christ. He says we are members of one another. We are members of one another. He's using the same logic, really, as he uses for marriage, for for husbands treating their wives well in Ephesians 5. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, you are so radically connected that you cannot pursue your good without pursuing her good. He's using basically the same exact analogy with the church here. He's saying we belong to each other. We are members of one another in the same way that the mouth cries out when the leg is hurt. If we understand what Paul is saying here, we will begin to understand how radically different church membership is from any other group membership we may participate in. Here are a few ways I believe that to be true. One way is that knowing we belong to each other makes participation in a church community essential to our faith. It's essential to our faith. It's not just part of it. The idea of a life of faith being between me and God is, it may make sense to a lot of people, but it's 100% foreign to the Bible. You can't find it. It's totally unique to our time and place. And so in this passage and many others, Paul makes it clear why that is. We are not saved to be with God and with God alone. That's not the good news. God has saved us to be with himself and to each other. That's what salvation is. And so being united to God and being united to each other, they're not separate concepts in the Bible. The same thing makes both of them true. When we are united to Christ, we're united to every other person who is also united to Christ. And so there's no Christian life without church participation. Because if we really believe that we belong to each other, we cannot affirm that we're part of a global church in a merely theoretical or emotional way. We can't just say, yes, yes, I understand. This is very important to me. And then go on and live our lives with no attachment to the church. We need to live that out with actual other Christians in the ways that God has called us to. We need to have genuine and meaningful relationships with other Christians in the highs and the lows the mundane aspects of our lives. We need to worship together on the Lord's day. We need to participate in the sacraments that God has given us, baptism, communion. We need to hear each other's voices. 
singing praise to God. It's not enough to just show up for a service and go home. We need to have Christians in our lives who can bring the gospel to bear when we need encouragement, when we need to repent from sin, when we're lost, and when the day-to-day just feels like the day-to-day, when everything feels normal. We need the gospel in all these times in our lives, and the gospel doesn't come to us with just us and God. It comes to us in a place like this. It comes to us in places like our home groups. It comes to us in phone calls and text messages and prayers that we pray for one another. It comes to us in meals that show up when babies are born, when family members die in our times of need. We need to be committed to an identifiable community that is also committed back to us. It's not elective on our end first, but this needs to be a choice that we make to commit to those that God has joined us with. And we need to have the benefit of hearing them and knowing that they're committed back to us in the same way. The good of the church is our good, and the bad in the church is our bad. If we're really members of one another, we cannot be blasé about the state of the church any more that we, than we could be blasé about ourselves or our own bodies. Knowing that we belong to each other also challenges my criteria for who belongs in my life. Because the church is not a squad. I mean, if, it, if the church were some kind of ideal social group where all the best people belong, I wouldn't be here. You guys wouldn't let me in, okay? And I'm sure other people feel the same way. It's not a squad. That's my best attempt at like a socially relevant. I don't, I'm probably like 10 years old on that one, aren't I? Um, but it's not a squad, okay? The church is not a life coaching group. It's not just a place we go to get better and become better people. I hope that happens here. I hope that's something we all experience. But that's not fundamentally what it is. The church is not defined by a charismatic or a helpful individual. We don't look at any one person and say, yeah, this is who we're all about. We came here because of this guy. It's not defined by a charismatic or a helpful individual. The church is people. And who are those people? The church is all the people who have been born again in Christ. The ones I gravitate to naturally and the ones I don't. Knowing we belong to each other, it elevates the need for gospel-centered community in church. I changed the way I worded this one. What did I say? There we go. It makes the gospel the defining element, the defining factor for my community. Someone could have helped me. Come on. (laughs) But it does. It elevates the need for gospel-centered community in church. What does this mean? A church that keeps the gospel in the background. A church that puts it on a document and then forgets about it. A church that slaps the gospel only onto the end of a sermon. It compromises its identity to the very core. You may have belonged to organizations, whether a church or a place of work or a club, who had a mission statement that bore very literal resemblance to what they actually did. There's parallel realities. There's what looks good 
and what we think we should be about, and then there's who we actually are and what we actually do. It's very important that you know that the church is defined by the gospel. The gospel. The good news of what God has done for his glory and his people in Christ is doing for his glory and his people in Christ and will do for his glory and his people in Christ needs to be the central thing in everything that the church does. This is what defines the church, is the gospel. The good news which has called us and caused us to be born again. The good news that we look forward to. The good news that we hope in, in the happiest and the darkest moment of our lives. So while any organization can do a lot of good things, it's something other than a church if something other than the gospel is at the center. It doesn't matter what it says on its mission statement. It doesn't matter what it says in its statement of faith. If something other than the gospel is at the center, it's something other than a church. And so if the main thing that we look for in a church is not the gospel, we are also looking for the wrong thing. We're looking for something other than a church. Whatever individual church community you live your life committed to, I mean, I see mostly faces I recognize and a couple that I don't. Um, It's not a given that you'll be committed to this church community. But whatever individual church community you live your life committed to, I want you to know that you need to make sure that it's one that talks about the gospel a lot, is clear about what the gospel is, and lives as if the gospel is true and calls you to do the same. I'll close like this. How did we come to belong to one another? That's what this passage is saying. We belong to each other. We belong to each other like your nose belongs to your face. That's the kind of relationship we have. How did we come to belong to one another? It was not through creation. If you are in Christ, we came to belong to each other the same way that we came to belong to Christ because God loved the world by sending his only son to die for sinners so they could live for him. And when Christ died and rose again, he united us with himself and he also united us with each other for eternity. And when you look around, it may surprise you to hear that this is good news. What I've been talking about this whole time, it's a part of the gospel that we too often leave out in our individualistic culture. This is good news. When Christ died and rose again, he united us with himself, and we can never be ununited to him if we're united to him now. He also united us to each other for eternity. This is good news. We need to remind ourselves, this is good news news. Because while we are prone to seek a leader from among us to rise above the world and show us the way to do the same, become a hero like him, Christ came down to the earth to redeem it and to be the way. He didn't come to show us the way. He is the way. He didn't say, here's the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am 
the way, the truth, and the life. So Christ came down to the earth to redeem the earth and to be the way himself. While we desire to escape undesirable people, Christ bears with us in his mercy. We should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Christ bears with us in his mercy. He makes us his own body. I mean, do you realize the honor of what's being said here? The church is called the body of Christ. That's unbelievable. Say that to a Muslim, you'll get slapped. It's blasphemy to say that a person could be the body of Christ. While we desire to escape undesirable people, Christ bears with us in his mercy. He makes us his own body, and he will bring us to glory together with one another. You're never going to be sitting on a cloud by yourself playing a harp. Heaven isn't going to be this place where it's like, if you like to snowboard, you're going to snowboard empty slopes for eternity. Look around. This is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be with each other. While we all want to be great in this world and in God's kingdom, God has told us something scandalous to the Western mind. The world will know who we are. A lot of people end early. A lot of people say, the world will know who we are by our love. The sentence continues. The world will know that we are Christ's by our love for one another, because we have love for the body to which we belong. And so in view of God's mercies, we've been implored to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's what our bodies were made for, to bring glory to God in everything we do. God has told us today something that's probably surprising, that we don't necessarily do that by dramatic overtures or heroic acts, Paul thinks that the living sacrifice that we offer to worship God has a lot to do with what we're doing right now. So as we close, rather than look only to your favorite Christian, look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, and look behind you. These are not just brothers and sisters saved by God. Remember as we close in worship that Christ has made you members of them and them members of you. You have a vested interest in one another's good because of what he's done for us. And any one of us who are in Christ will belong to each other too for eternity. And this is good news, friends. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.